Chapter Four, Part D of Greener Than You Think. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Greener Than You Think by Ward Moore. Chapter Four, Part D. I was a little dubious that after all the drinking and confidences he would remember to send his son around, and to tell the truth, in the calm morning I felt I would not be too sorry if he didn't, for he had not given me a very high opinion of that young man. What on earth consolidated pemmican could do with a musician and a draft evader as general manager, even if the title as it must be were purely honorary, I couldn't imagine. I had been long up, shaved and breakfasted, and had attended to my correspondence, before the telephone rang and George Thario announced himself at my disposal. He was what people call a handsome young man. That is, he was big and burly and slow, and his eyelashes were perceptible. His hair was short and he wore no hat, but lounged about the room with his hands, thumbs out, in his jacket pockets, looking at me vaguely through the curling smoke from a bent pipe. I had never seen any one look less like a musician, and I began to wonder if his father had been serious in so describing him. "'I don't like it,' he announced abruptly. "'Don't like what, Mr. Thario?' I inquired. "'Joe to you,' he corrected. "'Mr. from you to me belies our prospective relationship. Just call me Joe.' "'I thought your name was George.' baptismal whim of the old man's but it's a stuffy label no shortening it you know so the fellows all call me joe chummier don't like the idea of evading the draft shows a lack of moral courage by rights i ought to be a conchy but that would just about kill the old lady she's in a first-class uproar as it is like to see me in the front lines right now bursting with dulce et decorum I don't believe it would bother the old man any if I sat out the duration in a C.O. camp, but it'd hurt his job like hell, and the poor old boy is straining his guts to get into the trenches and twirl a theoretical saber. So I guess I'm slated to be your humble and obedient, Mr. Weiner. I'll be delighted to have you join our firm, I said wryly, for I felt he would be a completely useless appendage. In this, I am glad to say I did him an injustice, for though he never denied his essential lack of interest in concentrates and the whole process of money-making, he proved nevertheless, at such times as he chose to attend to his duties, a faithful and conscientious employee, his only fault being a lack of initiative and a tendency to pamper the workers in the plant. But I have anticipated. At the moment I looked upon him only as a liability to be balanced in good time by the asset of his father's position. It was therefore with irritation I listened to his insistence on my coming to the Thario home that afternoon to meet his mother and sisters. I had no desire for purely social intercourse, last evening's outing being in the nature of a business investment, and it seemed superfluous to be forced to extend courtesies to an entire family because of involvement with one member. However great my reluctance, I felt I couldn't afford to risk giving offense, and so at four o'clock promptly I was in Georgetown, using the knocker of a door looking like all the other doors on both sides of the street. I'm Winifred Thario, and you're the chewing-gum man. No, wait a minute, I'll get it. 
the food concentrate man who's going to make joe essential to the war effort do come in and excuse my rudeness i'm the youngest you know except for joe so everybody excuses me her straight blonde hair looked dead the vivacity which lit her wind-burned face seemed a false vivacity and when she showed her large white teeth i thought it was with a calculated effort she led me into a living-room peopled like an early victorian conversation piece behind a low table in a rocking-chair sat a large full-bosomed woman with the same dead hair and weather-beaten cheeks the only difference being that the blondness of her hair was mitigated by grey and in her face were the tiny broken red lines which no doubt in time would come to winifred this is mamma said winifred accenting the second syllable strongly and contriving at once to be vivacious and reverent Mamma inclined her head toward me without the faintest smile, welcoming or otherwise, placing her hand as she did so regally upon the tea-cosy as upon a royal orb. "'Mrs. Sario,' I said, "'I am delighted to meet you.' Mamma found this beneath her condescension. "'And this is Constance, the general's firstborn,' introduced Winifred, still retaining her liveliness despite Mamma's low temperature." Constance was the perfect connecting link between Winifred and her mother, not yet grey, but soon to be so, without Winifred's animation, but with the same voluntary smile showing the same white teeth. She rose and shook my hand, as she might have shaken a naughty puppy, with a vigorous, sidewise jerk, disengaging the clasp quickly. "'And this,' announced Winifred brightly, "'is Pauline.' To say that Pauline Thario was beautiful would be like saying Mount Everest is high. In her, the blonde hair sparkled like newly threshed straw. The teeth were just as white and even, but they did not seem too large for her mouth, and her complexion was faultless as a cosmetic ad. She was an unbelievably exquisite painting, placed in an appropriate frame. And yet... And yet the painting had a quality of unreality about it, as though it were the delineation of a Madonna without child or of a nun. There was no vigor to her beauty, no touch of the earthiness or of blemish necessary to make the loveliness real and bring it home. She did not offer me her hand, but bowed in a manner only slightly less distant than her mother's. I sat down on the edge of a petty point chair, thoroughly ill at ease. "'You must tell us about your pills, Mr. Weiner,' urged Winifred. "'Pills?' I asked, at a loss. "'Yes, the thingamajigs you're going to have Joe make for you,' explained Constance. Mamma made a loud trumpeting noise, which so startled me I half rose from my seat. "'Damn slacker!' she exclaimed, looking fiercely right over my head. "'Now, Mamma, blood pressure,' enjoined Pauline in a colorless voice. Mamma relapsed into immobility, and Winifred went on, quite as if there had been no explosion. "'Are you married, Mr. Weiner?' I said I was not. "'Then here's our chance for Pauline,' decided Winifred. "'Mr. Weiner, how would you like to marry Pauline?' I could do nothing but smile uncomfortably. Was this the sort of conversation habitually carried on in their circle, or were they quite mad?' Constance mentioned with apparent irrelevance, Winifred is so giddy, and Pauline smiled at me understandingly. But Winifred went on, We've been trying to marry Pauline off for years, you know. She's wonderful to look at, but she hasn't any sex appeal. 
Mamma snorted. Damned vulgar thing to have. Would you like some tea, Mr. Weiner? asked Constance. Tea? He looks like a secret Coca-Cola guzzler to me. Are you an American, mister? Ah! Mamma demanded fiercely, deigning for the first time to address me. I was born in California, Mrs. Thario, I assured her. Pity. Pity. Damned shame, she muttered. I was partially relieved from my uneasiness by the appearance of George Thario, who bounded in, waved lightly at his sisters, and kissed his mother just below her hairline. My respectful duty, Mamma, he greeted. Damned hypocrisy! You did your duty, you be in the army! Blood pressure, warned Constance. Have they made you thoroughly miserable, Mr. Weiner? Don't mind them. There's something wrong with all the Tharios, except the old man. Blood gone them from too much intermarriage. Just like incest, exclaimed Winifred. Don't you think incest's fascinating, Mr. Weiner? Eugene O'Neill and all that sort of thing. Morbid, objected Constance. Damned nonsense, grunted Mamma. Cream or lemon, Mr. Weiner? inquired Constance. Mamma, moved by a hospitable reflex, filled a grudging cup. Cream, please, I requested. Turn it sour, muttered Mamma, but she poured the cream and handed the cup to Constance, who passed it to Pauline, who gave it to me with a gracious smile. You just mustn't forget to keep Pauline in mind, Mr. Weiner. She would be a terrific help when you become horribly rich and have to do a lot of stuffy entertaining. Really, Winifred, protested Constance. Help him to the poorhouse and a damned good riddance. I spent another uneasy fifteen minutes before I could decently make my departure, wondering whether I hadn't made a mistake in becoming involved with the Tharios at all. But there being no question of the solidity of the general's position, I decided, since it was not, after all, incumbent upon me to continue a social connection with them, to bear with it and confine my acquaintance as far as possible to Joe and his father. As soon as the contracts were awarded, the struggle began to obtain necessary labor and raw materials. We were straining everything to do a patriotic service to the country in time of war, but we came up against the competition for these essentials by ruthless capitalists, who had no thought but to milk the government by selling them supplies at an enormous profit. Even with the wholehearted assistance of General Thario, it was an endless and painful task to comply with, break through, or evade the restrictions and regulations thrown up by an uncertain and slow-moving administration, restrictions designed to aid our competitors and hamper us. Yet we got organized at last, and by the time three Russian marshals had been purged, and the American high command had been shaken up several times, we had doubled the capacity of our plant, and were negotiating the purchase of a new factory in Florida. I set aside a block of stock for the general, but its transfer was a delicate matter on account of the indefatigable nosiness of the government, and I approached his son for advice. Elberich, exclaimed Joe incomprehensibly. Just wrap it up and mail it to him. Mamma, God bless her, takes care of all financial transactions anyway. And doubtless with great force, I thought. Such directness, I pointed out, might have embarrassing repercussions because of inevitably small-minded interpretation if the facts ever became public. 
We finally solved the problem by putting the gift in George Thario's name, he making a will leaving it to the general. I informed his father in a guarded letter of what we had done, and he replied at great length and somewhat indiscreetly, as the following quotation may show. In spite of pulling every handy and unhandy wire, I am still billeted on this ridiculous desk. The general staff is the most incompetent set of blunderers ever to wear military uniform since Bull Run. They've never heard of Falk, much less of Falkenhayn and Mockenzen, to say nothing of Rommel, Guderian, or Montgomery. They rest idly behind their Washington breastworks when the order of the day should be attack, attack, and again attack, keeping the combat entirely verbal, weakening the spirit of our forces, and waiting supinely for the enemy to bring the war to us. Although I was too much occupied with the press of business to follow the day-to-day -day progress of hostilities, there was little doubt the general was justified in his strictures. The war was entirely static. With fear of raids by marauding aircraft delayed, the only remaining uneasiness of the public had been whether the words heavier than aircraft covered robot or V-bombs. But when weeks had passed without these dreadful missiles whistling downward, this anxiety also went, and the country settled down to enjoy a wartime prosperity as pleasant, notwithstanding the fifty-hour week, rationing, and the exorbitant income tax, as the peacetime panic had been miserable. In my own case, consolidated pemmican was quoted at thirty-eight, and I was on my way, in spite of all hampering circumstances, to reap the benefits of foresight and industry. Unique among great combats, not a shot had so far been exchanged, and everyone except Cranks began to look upon the academic conflict as an unalloyed benefit. Gradually the war began leaving the front pages. Military analysts found themselves next to either the chess problems, today's selected recipe, or the weekly horoscope. People once more began to concern themselves with the grass. It now extended in a vast sweep from a point on the Mexican coast below the town of Mazatlan, northward along the slope of the Rocky Mountains up into Canada's Yukon province. It was wildest at its point of origin, covering southern California and Nevada, Arizona and part of New Mexico, and it was narrowest in the north where it dabbled with delicate fingers at the mouth of the Mackenzie River. It had spared practically all of Alaska, nearly all of British Columbia, most of Washington, western Oregon, and the seacoast of northern California. Why it surged up to the Rockies and not over them when it had conquered individually higher mountains was not understood, but people were quick once more to take hope and remember the plant's normal distaste for cold, or think there was perhaps something in the rarefied atmosphere to paralyze the seeds or inhibit the stolons, so preventing further progress. Even through the comparatively low passes, it came at such a slow pace, methods tried fruitlessly in Los Angeles were successful in keeping it back. Everyone was quite ready to wipe off the far west if the grass were going to spare the rest of the country. General Thario's indiscreet letters kept coming. If anything, they increased in frequency, indiscretion, and length as his continued frustration in securing a field command was added to his helpless wrath at the general staff's ineptitude. They have got hold of that odd female scientist, Francis, he wrote, 
and have made her turn over her formula for making grass go crazy. It's to be used as a war weapon, but how or where I don't know. Just the sort of silly rot a lot of armchair theorists would dream up. Later, he wrote indignantly, they are sending a group of picked men to Russia to inoculate the grasses on the steps with this Francis stuff. Sheer waste of trained men. Bungling incompetence. Why not send a specially selected group of hypnotists to persuade the Russians to sue for peace? It would be better to have given them Mills bombs and let them blow up the Kremlin. Time and effort and good men thrown away. Still later, he wrote with unconcealed satisfaction. Well, that silly business of inoculating the steps came to exactly nothing. Our fellows got through a course and did their job, but nothing happened to the grass. Either Francis gave them the wrong formula, possibly mislaid the right one in her handbag, or else what worked in California wouldn't do elsewhere. She is busy trying to explain herself to a military commission right now. For my part, they can either shoot her or put her in charge of the whack. It's of no moment. You can't fight a determined enemy with spray guns and formulas. Attack with infantry by way of Siberia. End of chapter 4, part D.